should hear the things that she says. She says, hon, drop dead, I'd rather go to bed with Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Cuddle up with Robertson Davies, leave on the light for Jane Rule. I've been flirting with Pia Burton, and Pia Burton's no fool. I like to go out dancing, my baby loves a bunch of authors. My heart's a broken, bleeding, baby just sitting there, doing some reading. Hello, and welcome to The Mirror Factory, a literary podcast dedicated to your favorite passages from fiction and a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your foreman, Max Romero. Today we have a very special guest, Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the show, Rob. <laughs> However, did you land me? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're so in demand, Rob. It's hard. It's not that easy. <laughs> anyway, I, I am thrilled to be here. Max, you told me about this show, this, this premise, a long time ago, and I was really excited because i think it's a great idea for a show and i've liked the episode you've done so far so i'm very happy to be here well i'm very happy to have you here rob i wouldn't even be on this network if it wasn't for you so i appreciate that and i appreciate you being on so as you mentioned you were you, you seemed very excited when i came up with this idea and i kind of threw it around to the the rest of the people on the network and you were you immediately sent me a text telling me you wanted to do this book so what book is it and, and why don't you tell us why yeah, the, the book I wanted to talk about is uh, Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge from 1944. It is my favorite book of all time. Um, I have read it probably, I don't know, at least three dozen times by now, and I actually collect different editions of it. I, that was a thing I'd never heard of, that like that was the thing people did, until I saw, um, almost at the same time, two different examples. I had a friend that liked to collect different versions of Olita. It was her favorite book. Mm. Uh, read into that what you will. And, <laughs> um, um, and then I saw a photo that uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, the legendary Forrest Ackerman, loved the original Frankenstein so much that he uh. collected different editions. And there was a, even a photo of like his bookshelf of all the different Frankensteins in different languages and hardcovers and softcovers. And you, know, you can imagine all the different versions of Frankenstein. Right. And so when I started out, I, was, I didn't know that the razor's edge was as popular as it was it was a bestseller in 1944 so there are dozens of editions and so i've just been picking them up over the years and every time i get a new edition i read the book again and i actually have a new one sitting on my shelf uh, right now that i haven't gotten to so uh yeah it is my my favorite book of all time and and i'm not big on fiction i read a lot of non-fiction but something about this book really struck me and it's stuck with me ever since just out of curiosity how many editions do you have how many copies think, do you think you have? I think I have about 30. Wow. <laughs> the, 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 two, the two versions that are the most unique, I have one that's entirely in Hebrew. Really? Um, yeah, so can't read that one, but, you know, okay. And then the other one that I really love is there were books published in the 40s for servicemen, and they were done on specifically cheap paper, and they were printed in um, horizontal format as oh. opposed to vertical so they could slip in the back of a gi's pocket easily mm -hmm. and they were called i forget the name of them i even read a book about these books and so i have a wartime edition of the razor's edge so it reads wow. like it's in landscape um so i have that and i love the idea that like you know probably the version i have is probably just was sitting in a warehouse somewhere uh as opposed to like literally you know probably in the back pocket of somebody while they were in Anzio, you know, right. shooting Nazis. But I tell myself that the, the version I have, you know, was maybe actually in a war. So those are like yeah. my two favorite editions because they're just so unique. Yeah, and that's probably your oldest edition, isn't it? Because this, uh, you said this came out in 44? Yeah. 
Yeah, they were. I have a bunch that I have a hardcover that that was that's an original hardcover from 1944, wow. and then uh, they made a movie about it in 1946, and they released a version with a movie related photo cover, and I have that one. Wow. So those are the oldest ones dating back from the 40s. But the book is has never been out of print. It's constantly. Uh, you know, in print, it's not even one of Mom's like most famous novels. He's done other of Human Bondage and some other book, The Painted Veil. They've made movies of both those. So he's, you know, he's one of these guys that even though he's been he's been dead for forty years, more than that, his books are just perennially in print. So The Razor's Edge, like every so often, I'll go on Amazon and I'll look. Oh, look, there's a new edition, so I pick it up. So what is it about it that you think makes it popular with people in general and, and with you specifically? Well, you know, uh, after in the summers between art school and then right after, I decided that I wanted to to read more. Uh, I, of course, spent my whole life reading comic books, and not mm-hmm. that there's anything wrong with that, but I wanted to kind of you know expand my horizons a little. And they had these things back then called bookstores. <laughs> I've heard of those. Purchase books. I mean, it's amazing now. <laughs> um, they're kind of like uh, record stores for modern kids today. And uh, and so I would just buy lot of the classics that I'd never read. I read Moby Dick. I'm very proud of the fact that I worked my way through the entire Moby <laughs> Dick, even all the mid-400 pages about whale blubber. I read Moby yeah, Dick. I, I read, read Moby Dick, and I was angry when I got to the... <laughs> no, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I, I read a lot of, you know, like um, Heart of Darkness, and mm-hmm. I read, like, a lot of, like, I'm blanking on other books, but, like, you know, famous book, Mark Twain. I read a lot of the classics that I'd never read. And The Razor's Edge, the only knowledge I had of The Razor's Edge at all was that it was a Bill Murray movie. You know, I knew right. that Bill Murray had done a movie version, and I knew that it was like his dramatic turn. I'd never seen the movie, but that was I was aware of The Razor's Edge as a concept. And so I was like, okay. So I got the book, and I just fell in love with it. And it's about a guy, Lawrence Darrell, Larry Darrell, who comes back from World War One, and he can't settle into his old life where he's hanging out with his rich friends. He's got a fiance named Isabel, and he's got a... a, a Sort of a sort of a friend named Gray Maturin, and they live this kind of very well-heeled, more than upper middle class lifestyle of parties and mm-hmm. and you know posh dining, all this stuff. But he can't return to that life because there's something restless in him. Something in the war has transformed him. Nobody can understand him, and so he goes on this spiritual journey. And Mom supposedly based the book on a real person that he knew. There's lots of speculation as to who that person might be because Mom himself is a character in the book. He is narrating the story as himself. He's basically like, I'm Somerset Mom. I'm the author. Here's the story I'm going to tell you. And the way the book unfolds is we have this main storyline of all the other characters. As I mentioned, Isabel and Gray Maturin and there's Elliot Templeton, this older gentleman who's like an art collector and super mega rich. Mm -hmm. And he's like a snob and he can't. He can't understand why Isabel is so hung up on Larry. Right. And Larry. And Sophie. And so there's Sophie. Yeah, mm-hmm. that friend named Sophie. And uh, Larry wants to go and just study spirituality. And he wants to basically not work. And he wants – because he has a little bit of money left over from the war that, uh, you know, he's got payments from Uncle Sam, as he puts it. And he wants to go and, like, read philosophy and learn Greek. And he wants to expand his horizons. And, of course, everyone else is like, what do you – What's the matter with you? Just come back to your normal life. What's wrong? Hey, but he, and he can't put his finger on it. And so the book follows these two tracks where we follow Isabel, Elliot, Gray, and then all these other people. Meanwhile, Larry flits in and out of the book, and we get these little tantalizing glimpses 
of the spiritual life he's leading, mm-hmm. and then he'll disappear again for like another hundred pages out of the book, and then he comes right back. And mom keeps trying to kind of tease it out, like, well, you know, what is, what's what's going on with this guy? Right. You know, and, and that's he's, what he's a little different. He's a little more different every time he he comes back. He's a little more spiritual, a little more, right. you know, to them he he gets he gets stranger and stranger. Right, but to but to to, to Somerset mom, he's intrigued because right. he seems like a different person every time he comes back, and. I, I'm someone who is fascinated at the idea of going on like a spiritual journey, you know, like that stuff is it, the idea of dropping everything, all the trappings of your life, all the things that, you know, all the sort of cages we build for ourselves of dropping all that and just like strapping on a backpack mm-hmm. and heading out into like the Himalayas or something. I mean, I'd be killed instantly if I did that. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that like if, if i had to name my second favorite book of all time it's lost horizon which mm. is contains again another similar idea of a guy finding a spiritual retreat you know there can't be a coincidence there and so i just found that so fascinating and in the book as we get toward the third the, the final third of the book we get to learn what larry has learned at length he right. talks to mom at length about his spiritual journey and his wrestling with the notions of God. Is there a God? If there is a God, why is God putting us through these things? Why, what, you know, what is a spiritual life? As I get older, those questions become more meaningful to me. And so the book to me has ages along with me. It's not right. like, it's not a, it's not a nostalgia piece where it's like, oh, it's that thing I loved when I was 20. No, I, as there are parts of the book I didn't understand in my 20s and now I feel like I have a better handle on. So it, it, right. the book just keeps evolving for me. Let me ask you, and this is this is kind of a personal question, so you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But have you have you developed your spiritually yourself from the way maybe you were when you were younger to how you are now, one way or the other? That's a good question. I don't I don't know. I don't even know the answer to that. Really, um, I would I have a certain set of beliefs that I think are probably you know as close as satisfying to me as i'm going to get i guess i would put it that way mm-hmm. um you know like that's uh, there are things that i'm i'm sure of about how to go through this life and how what's the right way to be and right. i'm more sure of that as i get older but in terms of you know i i'm certainly have always been very skeptical of religion i mean beyond skeptical is even right. like organized religion it's not even a term beyond skeptical it's downright derogatory about it and that that that's been that that has caused problems with other people in my life and stuff and sure. i try not to be a dick about it which i think is a good way to go through life just not being yeah a dick. yeah um but 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 i i am nevertheless fascinated at the approach that larry has about trying to answer this question of is there a soul is there a god all that stuff it's just to me it's just utterly fascinating yeah i I've, i haven't um finished reading the book yet but I've, I've read the passage that we're going to talk about and i've read um a chunk of it and from a little background on on my i guess kind of spiritual background i consider myself an, an agnostic humanist um but i was baptized twice <laughs> i was baptized uh, methodist and catholic Wow, twice. Yeah. The first one didn't take. I mean, like what? <laughs> I don't know. Does boiling water count? I don't know. But more or less raised in a Catholic church setting, even though my parents were not very religious either. And so uh, I guess we went, you know, a lot of times I think parents want to take their kids to church when they're younger to try and give them some sort of moral foundation. 
Um, but then they dis- my parents at least discovered that they like sleeping in on Sundays and <laughs> having pancake <laughs> breakfasts. And, um, and so we never went. And the thing for me is that I always had a lot of questions that didn't seem to be, like you said, you know, they weren't satisfying to me. They, they weren't satisfactorily being answered. And I think I found a lot of those answers in self-reflection. And I, I can see that in what Larry is doing because he's, he doesn't seem to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, he doesn't seem to adhere to any one philosophy or any one religion. It's something kind of that he is taking from different sources and making his own. For the most part, yeah, it is not. It is not. He's not. He's not an evangelist. He's not a missionary. And the, during the the final scenes where he's talking to to mom, he's not trying to convert mom. He's just saying, "This is what I discovered, and this is what I think is true." But at no point is he uh, evangelize, evangelizing, if that's mm-hmm. even a right word. And that's the thing I like. I like the idea of someone just saying, "This is what I believe. This is what I think is true." But I'm not trying to like change your mind or anything like that. And so you you mentioned that hitting the road is something that you've and we've talked about this, but you, you know that that's something that's enticing to you. That that's something that's a dream of yours. Have you ever been able to do that? No, and I, I'm sure I never will. You know, it's just there's too many things of of responsibilities, and you know, uh, uh, it, it's just not something that I, I'm I'm okay with the idea that that's not ever really going to happen and that's fine we can't all do everything we want to do right <laughs> throughout our lives and uh you know i'm I also i am too of i'm too old and too set in my ways i know that's shocking to a lot of you listening to this <laughs> um to to be able to fully enjoy that i think i would be stressed i think maybe mm. if i was in my 20s i would have been more willing to but now it's like to me if i'm not you know having my hotel room already booked that to me that's roughing it you know like so <laughs> i'm just i think i've aged out of out of that uh, the, that journey which is fine yeah no i understand when i was younger i would you know i'd take road trips and i'd sleep on the floor of someone else's hotel right, room and yeah. i don't do that anymore yep yep i can't and i don't want to i don't want to at this point but if if you could where would you go that's a, boy, that's another good question. I mean, I would really love to. I I I make no bones about this. I have such a deep seated, almost like in my bones, uh, attraction to California, and I would love to just tool around California and see what's there. Um, the first time I ever went to California, I took three steps outside the airport, and I felt something that I have never felt any other place in my entire life. Of like, this is where I'm meant to be, and I have not been able to move there uh mostly because gutierrez keeps keeping me out uh, <laughs> but uh, uh but i would love and every time i've gone back there i feel it you know i feel yeah. this pang of like i don't want to come back i want to just stay here and i i have only seen brittle brief little glimpses of california california is a big state and uh, i would love to get in a car and just tool up the coast of from northern to southern california and just see what's there and see if there's anything that made me want to want to stay so right. you know yeah no I, I completely understand i think there's a place that i really love um and that i've loved since i was a kid of all places i can't live there <laughs> but it's uh carlsbad caverns <laughs> in new mexico <laughs> okay. uh, and um the first time i went there i was you know i was a kid i went with my family because uh you know i, I was raised in el paso which is only a few hours away from there and I had kind of that same sense of because when you go in, you go from you know from outside from ground level, and you kind of walk into this giant cave mouth, 
and the, the, the path winds down and it gets darker and it get, you could feel the temperature change. And it was, um, I was nervous because I was young and never been in a cave like that before. But at the same time, I felt this really overwhelming sense of, um, I don't want to say peace, but of being where I could be at peace, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it is still one of my favorite places to visit just because there's something about that, you know, cave in the middle of the New Mexican desert that feels like a pivot point for some mm. reason. And I understand sometimes you go places and you kind of feel like, oh, I'm home. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You can't explain it. There's no, there's no, you know, uh, there's, there's no tangible reason why you would feel that way, and yet you do. Boy, if you could live there, though, that'd be the most <laughs> badass address. You send letters to Max Romero. <laughs> well, I, I think I think I'd probably have to get a cape and a and a cow with pointy ears if I do that, though. <laughs> <That'd> be awesome. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's um, it's interesting that. Larry in the story comes back, but he never stays. And I think there's a point where Isabel is even talking about that, where she says, if I'd married him, it wouldn't have worked because mm-hmm. we we know that he wouldn't stay. Right. Yeah. And she, she says trying to hold on to him is like holding on to smoke because mm-hmm. he just disappears. And that's the way he is. And, and not to, not to break your format of your show, but there yeah. is a quote from the book that I want to read. Just, it's like two sentences sure. that is way early on. And it gives you an idea of like something is going on in the like you're uh, let me just read the quote. This is this is where mom is out and he noted he walks by a cafe and he sees Larry reading a book and it's like six in the morning. And he's like, boy, that's strange because we were just out the night before partying. Right. And he's, this is young man. This tw- college age guy is already up at, at a cafe reading a book. And so but he, he doesn't know Larry th- that well. So he doesn't say anything. And then he goes back to the cafe around lunchtime to get like a coffee. And he sees Larry, same chair, reading the same book. And he's like, what the? That's weird. And then he comes back for dinner time and he sees Larry still sitting there, still reading the book. And so finally the day goes on and then it's like midnight and he's like, I couldn't help myself. I had to look. And he goes back to the cafe and there is Larry again. And it ends with um, the, the this portion ends with he says i looked at it he talked about the book that larry was reading and saw it was william james's principles of psychology it is of course a standard work and important in the history of the science with which it deals it is moreover exceedingly readable but it is not the sort of book i should have expected to see in the hands of a very young man an aviator who had been dancing till five in the morning and after that he goes back on the story with isabel and elliot and everybody else and you, you get this tantalizing glimpse of like, wait a minute, our main character is doing something really interesting, but he's not telling us. Mm-hmm. That to me, I just that's found that so compelling. It's such a daring way to write your book is to leave your main character out of the action for two thirds of the book. Right. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a very interesting book to read. What was it about the passage that you've chosen that spoke to you? Well, the part I'm going to get to, and I can't read all of it because it's almost like a whole chapter, um, and, and we don't need that. But like, <laughs> there's, there's during, as I said, during the final third of the book, we finally get extended scenes of Larry and Somerset talking, and Larry lays out everything that's been happening to him: his trips to India, his teachings with a Flemish mystic, all this kind of stuff. And he talks about that he achieved what he thought was like basically oneness with the spirit, and he 
goes on a little bit about about what he's talking about, and that's part of the part I'm going to read, so we have a little bit of context. But then, Mom pauses and ends this chapter with this moment where he sort of is like, "Okay, we need to sum up what's going on here," and he is then reflecting on the moment he's having with Larry about the amazing stuff he's hearing Larry say, and there's something about the way Mom sums it up, and, and the fact that it ends a chapter just to me is is it it chills me to my bones in a good way of like this guy is talking about all these amazing things he's done and yet he's never heard this and i will when we when i read the quote we'll get to it exactly but there's just that is like probably my favorite moment in the book because it's just to me it's just it conjures up an image i have an image in my head of what it looks like these two men sitting at this cafe and it's it's like in the summer so you're up until you know three in the morning but it's still warm out it just it conjures so many things that uh, I, I don't know it's just unforgettable to me What's interesting about this passage is that, to me, you know, Larry has has kind of awakened to this new um, perspective, and it almost feels like Somerset is on the edge of understanding something else, you know, mm-hmm. but, but he can't quite see it. He's seen it through Larry's eyes, but he can't quite see it himself. Yes, all, all I he, agree. You know, all he, all he can kind of do is report. Right. Okay, well, is there anything else that I, that you'd like to say about this passage in, in particular, or about the, the book? Um, I guess I will mention mention this, and it's sort of funny, is um, back when I had an art blog and I was doing like original art pieces just for my own entertainment, I also would do stuff that was more graphic design, like just, you know, it wasn't an illustration, it was a, it was a design of something. Mm-hmm. And every so often, I would design my own cover of The Razor's Edge, just for my own entertainment. So I did one, I designed one cover, and I used a black and white photo of my father. Uh, from the from back when he was in his 20s and it's him sitting at a dock and it's a beautifully framed shot it was shot by my uncle fred who i've mentioned on many of my other podcasts who was a genuinely brilliant photographer not professionally but just a brilliant photographer and he took this picture of my father sitting and you know you can't see my dad's face but i know it's my dad and i'll be damned if it doesn't feel like larry darrell because it Mm. looks like a spiritual shot it looks like somebody contemplating life it just has that feel to it so i use that photo for the cover of this book and i add you know i add, i typeset the title and i put the quote and the epigram and you know i made it look like a real book cover and i just did it again for my own entertainment and i forgot about it then a couple of like a year ago i wanted to put a quote from the razor's edge on a facebook uh post and i couldn't exactly I, I didn't want to just get it wrong i didn't want to paraphrase i wanted to get it exactly right so i was like i wonder if anybody put a pdf of the razor's edge on the internet that mm-hmm. i could just download and i found it somebody you know transcribed the entire book and put it up as a pdf and i was like okay so i downloaded it and they included a cover and they used my cover <laughs> <laughs> i did like a triple take when i saw it I was like, wait wait wait, wait 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 uh something that looked like your cover or your actual no, cover my cover they literally took my cover <laughs> And it and appended it to their PDF of the book. So if you didn't know oh. better, you would think that's a real cover of the Razor's Edge, which I can't. I can't. That's the best tribute I could imagine. How did that happen? I don't know. They must have done a Google search for Razor's Edge, and they saw that cover, and they didn't. Maybe they didn't know that it was a fake cover, and they just used it. So now there's a PDF out there of the Razor's Edge with my cover wow. as the front part. I'm, you sent me a, a copy of that, and I'm looking at it right now. I. 
you know, you told me you had a story about this, but I had no idea that was the story. <laughs> yeah, I've had my work stolen online a lot of times, but this is the one time I'm okay with it. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Thank you, anonymous <laughs> internet thief. <laughs> Well, speaking of anonymous internet thieves, uh, let's take a break. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a segue. Uh, I know. And um, when we come back, you'll read your passage from W. Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge. Come back. Back through the fire and water network. Come back with the supermates. I said... Come back. Back to... The House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Haynes. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Jean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Franklin Stein. Back. Back. Yes, master. He thinks I'm Dracula. <laughs> attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHcast on fireandwaterpodcast.com. I am going to look out of the window to observe the beauty of the prospect. And what happens when my back is turned, neither God nor man can hold me responsible for. By yon bonny banks and by yon bonny bridge. Where the sun shines bright on Loch Lomond, where me and my true love were ever together, on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. From W. Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge. You pass through long halls, the roof supported by sculptured columns, and at the foot of each column a religious mendicant is seated. Each has in front of him a bowl of offerings or a small mat on which the faithful now and again throw a copper coin. Some are clad, some are almost naked. 
Some look at you vacantly as you pass. Some are reading, silently or aloud, and it appears unconscious of the streaming throng. I looked for my friend among them. I never saw him again. I suppose he proceeded onto the journey to his goal. And what was that? Liberation from the bondage of rebirth. According to the Vedantists, the self, which they call the Atman and we call the soul, is distinct from the body and its senses, distinct from the mind and its intelligence. It is not part of the Absolute, for the Absolute, being infinite, can have no parts. But the Absolute itself, it is uncreated. It has existed from eternity, and when at last it has cast off the seven veils of ignorance, will return to the infinitude from which it came. It is like a drop of water that has arisen from the sea and in a shower has fallen into a puddle, then drifts into a brook, finds its way into a stream, and after that into a river, passing through mountain gorges and wide plains, winding this way and that, obstructed by rocks and fallen trees, till at last it reaches the boundless sea from which it rose. But that poor little drop of water, when it has once more become one with the sea, has surely lost its individuality. Larry grinned. You want to taste sugar. You don't want to become sugar. What is individuality but the expression of our egoism? Until the soul has shed the last trace of that, it cannot become one with the absolute. You talk very familiarly of the absolute, Larry, and it's an imposing word. What does it actually signify to you? Reality. You can't say what it is. You can only say what it isn't. It's inexpressible. The Indians call it Brahman. It's nowhere and everywhere. All things imply and depend upon it. It's not a person. It's not a thing. It's not a cause. It has no qualities. It transcends permanence and change, whole and part, finite and infinite. It is eternal because its completeness and perfection are unrelated to time. It is truth and freedom. Golly, I said to myself, but to Larry, but how can a purely intellectual conception be a solace to the suffering of human race? Men have always wanted a personal God to whom they can turn in distress for comfort and encouragement. It may be that at some far distant day, greater insight will show them that they must look for comfort and encouragement in their own souls. I myself think the need to worship is no more than the survival of an old remembrance of cruel gods that had to be propitiated. I believe God is within me or nowhere. If that's so, who or what am I doing to worship? Myself? Men are on different levels of spiritual development, and so the imagination of India has evolved the manifestations of the Absolute that are known as Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, and by a hundred other names. The Absolute is in Isavara, the creator and ruler of the world. And it is in the humble fetish before which the peasant in his sun-baked field places the offering of a flower. The multitudinous gods of India are but expedients to lead in the realization that the self is one with the supreme self. I looked at Larry reflectively. I wondered just what it was that attracted you to this austere faith, I said. I think I can tell you. I've always felt that there was something pathetic in the founders of religion who made it a condition of salvation that you should believe in them. It's as though they needed your faith to have faith in themselves. They remind you of those old pagan gods that grew wan and faint if they were not sustained by the burnt offerings of the devout. Adavita doesn't ask you to take anything on trust. It asks only that you have a passionate craving to know reality. It states that you can experience God as surely as you can experience joy or pain. And there are men in India today, hundreds of them for all I know, who have the certitude that they have done so. I found something wonderfully satisfying in the notion you can attain reality by knowledge. In later ages, the sages of India, in recognition of human infirmity, admitted that salvation may be won by the way of love and the way of works, but they never denied that the noblest way, through the hardest, is the way of knowledge, for its instrument is the most precious faculty of man, his reason. I must interrupt myself to make it plain that I'm not attempting here to give anything in the nature of a description of the philosophical system known as Vedanta. 
I have not the knowledge to do so, but even if I had, this would not be the proper place for it. Our conversation was a long one, and Larry told me a great deal more than I have felt possible to sit down in what, after all, purports to be a novel. My concern is with Larry. I should not have touched on such an intricate subject at all, except it seemed to me that without at least some slight account of his speculations and the singular experiences that were perhaps occasioned by them, I could not give plausibility to the line of conduct for which he led to adopt and with which I shall presently acquaint the reader. It irks me that I cannot hope with any words of mine to give an idea of the pleasantness of his voice that invested even his most casual utterances with persuasiveness, or the constant change in his expression, from grave to gently gay, from reflective to playful, that accompanied his thoughts like the ripple of a piano when the violins with the great sweep swing the several themes of a concerto. Although he spoke of serious things, he spoke of them quite naturally, in a conversational tone, with a certain diffidence, perhaps, but without any more constraint than if he had been speaking of the weather and the crops. If I had given the impression there was anything didactic in his manner, the fault is mine. His modesty was as evident as his sincerity. There was no more than a sprinkling of people in the café. The roisterers had long since departed. The sad creatures who make a business of love had gone to their sordid dwellings. Now and then a tired-looking man came in to have a glass of beer and a sandwich, or one who seemed only half awake for a cup of coffee. White-collar workers. One had been on a night shift and was going home to bed. The other, roused by the call of an alarm clock, was on his unwilling way to a long day's labor. Larry appeared as unconscious of the time as of the surroundings. I have found myself, in the course of my life, in many strange situations. More than once I have been within a hair's breadth of death. More than once I have touched hands with romance and known it. I have ridden a pony through Central Asia along the road that Marco Polo took to reach the fabulous lands of Cathay. I have drunk a glass of Russian tea in a prim parlor in Petrograd, while a soft-spoken little man in a black coat and striped trousers told me how he assassinated a grand duke. I have sat in a drawing room in Westminster and listened to the serene geniality of a piano trio of Haydens while the bombs are crashing about. But I do not think I have ever found myself in a stranger situation than when I sat on the red plush seats of that garage restaurant for hour after hour while Larry talked of God and eternity, of the absolute, and the weary wheel of endless becoming. Thanks again to Rob Kelly for being a guest on The Mirror Factory. Rob is the co-founder of the Fire and Water Podcast Network and is the host of the Film and Water Podcast, Treasury Cast, and Pod Dylan, and the co-host of the Fire and Water Podcast, Superman Movie Minute, the Power Records Podcast, and Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. No, I don't know how he does it either. Let's go down to the mailroom. On our first episode, we talked about Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Robert Ward posted, Oh great, a third podcast I have to listen to. I just listened to this first episode and really enjoyed it. The premise sounds fun and slightly different than the other shows I'm listening to, so I can't wait to see what the future holds for the show. Rob Kelly, who we just heard on this episode, said, I am so excited about this show. Love the premise, and of course I want to hear more from Max Romero in general. The shag selection from The Very Hungry Caterpillar is going to be great. Chuck Coletta says, As an old English and American lit major, it's nice to know folk are still reading books besides comics. I taught a contemporary pop lit class last year, and it's difficult getting many students to read anything. I just read Our Town again and find that last speech from Emily to be one of my favorites. Chris Franklin said, 
Great first episode, Max. Haunting stuff. I recall reading it in middle school and it kind of blew my mind. Your story about ripping up covers would no doubt horrify my librarian wife. It is, of course, also the origin of a lot of coverless newsstand comics from the 40s on. Chris Franklin, of course, is a member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's the co-host of the Supermates Podcast with his wife, Cindy Franklin, and also the co-host of the Superman Movie Minute with Rob. Ice D says, Thank you very much for bringing this sort of show to the network, Mr. Romero. I kick myself for not reading prose more often, so maybe this show will spur me to read more than comics. Just a quick note here. Comics are a completely legitimate form of literature, and any reading is good reading. So, everyone knows I'm a big fan of comics. Read what you like. Mike Dean says, This is a great idea for a show on this network. For me, reading comics as a kid got me interested in reading books, and I still read both to this day. They both offer something unique. An excellent reading of Fahrenheit 451. Having worked in a, lot, in a library as well, I found this wasn't a cautionary tale about censorship so much as a horror novel. Those poor books. Bradbury is a great writer, and Something Wicked This Way Comes is the only book I can remember that gave me goosebumps. Goosebump books, not included. A fantastic first episode. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Mike. Sontaron, or Sontaron, Sontaron? We'll go with one of those says, interesting that you go with this book to name the podcast after on a mostly common book network. And then he quotes Fahrenheit 51. But the public, knowing what it wanted, spinning happily, let the comic books survive. Ward Hill Terry says, Hooray! A way for me to get on a fire and water podcast. Besides calling Professor Zoom's hotline, that is. This sounds like a terrific idea, Max. I did not recognize the reference in the title. Even though I read Fahrenheit 451 back in middle school, nothing much stuck with me. Hardly any at all, apparently. The passage you chose was masterful. As much as one can enjoy listening to horrific nuclear destruction, I enjoyed listening to you read Bradbury's prose. Uh, Bradbury gets all the credit. Does anyone else think that all of Foreman Max's mirrors have red backs with yellow and black stripes? That's, uh, that, that, that's a reference to my other podcast, Plasticast, which I hope you'll listen to as well. That's a podcast all about Plastic Man, who I'm a very big fan of. On the second episode of The Mirror Factory, we talked about The Fellowship of the Ring with special guest Dr. Ange. Robert Ward said, I've never read any of the LOTR books. Hell, I've only ever bothered wa with watching the first film. But I thought this was a great proper first episode with a guest. Your discussion about the apparent foreshadowing was fantastic, and I think sets the bar high for what we can expect from this series. Chris Franklin said, Great episode, fellas. Great question for Dr. Ange there, Max. Mike Dean said, Well done on a good book for a great episode. I enjoyed the discussion on how the book is enjoyable to you personally. Most literary discussions I've seen seem to be more about the book being a classic and the author's process, but not too many people talk about why these books affect them personally. Excellently done. It's funny how Ange mentioned The Hobbit is more of a kid's book. The Hobbit is one I did read as a kid, I think around 12 or 13 years old, and liked immensely. When I then moved on to The Lord of the Rings, I remember them being too hard to read, and because of that, not liking them very much. I mean, why take a great book like The Hobbit and then elongate it over three books and add more political machinations? My little kid brain just couldn't handle it. I've come to appreciate the Lord of the Rings books over time, but to me and my kid brain, they will never be as good as The Hobbit. The passage reading was well done and worked well with the backing music. I can't wait to hear more of these. Keep up the great work. And I responded online with, Thanks, Mike. I'm glad you liked the more personal discussion because that's exactly what we're aiming for. Personal stories about the stories that mean something to our guests. I had the same problem with Lord of the Rings. I devoured The Hobbit and then stalled on Fellowship. It wasn't until I came back to them later that I could really appreciate the entire trilogy. Uh, today's guest, Rob, says, This was great, if too short. I never would have imagined a connection between LOTR and medicine, but Max and Ange made for compelling listening. 
If not reading The Silmarillion makes Ange question his geek credentials, I wonder what he would make of me, who has never read any of the books and have only seen two of the five movies. Really looking forward to more episodes of this show. Ziskoid answered him, Your Tolkien cred is indeed in question since there are six movies in the Peter Jackson canon. Ziskoid, of course, is also a member of the Fire and Water podcast network. Ziskoid co-hosts the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, First Strike the Invasion podcast, Ohatmu or Not, and Gimme That Star Trek. Brian Linton wrote in to say, Tolkien is one of the three major pillars of my geekdom, with Aquaman and Star Wars being the other two. I first read The Hobbit back in fourth grade, The Lord of the Rings in fifth and sixth grade, and The Silmarillion in middle school. Similarly to Ange, I reread the trilogy once a year every year throughout high school and college. I don't have time to do that anymore, but I do read something by Tolkien every year. Point in fact, yesterday, while we were driving through the Midwest on our family vacation, we were listening to the unabridged audiobook of The Fellowship of the Ring. I'd have to say that I've always been drawn to Tolkien's skill at world-building, and the sense of the rich history that lies beneath his stories. All of that is to say that I really enjoyed this episode. I have many favorite passages from The Lord of the Rings, but agree that this one encapsulates one of the primary themes of the entire trilogy, that being the theme of mercy. To this day, my favorite stories are those in which the hero's strength and skills fail him or her, and victory comes through an act of compassion. Spider-Man Homecoming is an excellent recent example of this sort of ending. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Shag wrote in to say, Another wonderful episode. Always a pleasure to hear Dr. Ange on the show, especially on a topic he's so passionate about. Personally, I'm not the world's biggest fan of The Fellowship of the Ring, and was a little fearful that Ange's passage might be from Tom Bombadil. Whew. Enjoyed the insights and discussion about the moral issues surrounding murdering Gollum. Looking forward to the next episode. Shag is another co-founder of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and of course he is the co-host of the Fire and Water Podcast, the Hero Points Podcast, and Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, as well as the host of the Justice League International Wahaha Podcast. Thanks to everyone for writing in, and keep those comments coming. We love to hear from you. Please leave your comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, drop me a line at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and until next time, read a book!